Welcome to A State of Mind, the podcast that brings together consciousness, meditation, mindfulness, psychology, psychedelics, and so much more in pursuit of this mystery we call life. This is Julian Royce. Hello, we have a wonderful episode for you today. Before we get to that, I just wanted to make a quick announcement reminding everyone to hit the subscribe button on your podcast listening app. We have recently switched to a new hosting service. Um, and I want to read a message from a listener, Jordana from Berlin. And that is my new favorite name, Jordana. She writes, thanks so much for producing a terrific and thought provoking podcast. So thank you, Jordana. Um, today's conversation is really one of my personal favorites thus far on this podcast. It is with my friend Pierre Bouchard. He is a trauma-informed somatic therapist who specializes in ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Um, and we didn't talk about this in our conversation together, but I found out when I first met Pierre, like five years ago, that we both did the same study abroad program based in Bodh Gaya, India. And this is a Buddhist studies program. Um, it's about five months long, and Bodh Gaya, where this program takes place, where you actually live there, it's the place where the historical Buddha Shakyamuni is said to have reached enlightenment, sitting under the Bodhi tree. Um, and in the Tibetan tradition, Shakyamuni Buddha is called the fourth Buddha of this fortunate eon, and that refers to the idea that in our time period here on this particular planet, there will be 1,000 Buddhas who appear to help us. <laughs> so at least in the Tibetan tradition, it's interesting that it's understood that there are more than just one Buddha. Um, so we both did this program, you know, you live there for five months and there's monks and pilgrims coming from all over the world. Um, and there's an actual tree there, the Bodhi tree, that is said to have been grown from a cutting of the original Bodhi tree that the Buddha sat underneath all those years ago. Um, so in our conversation today, we talk about meditation and issues that, are, that can arise when we separate ourselves from our own experience, which is basically a mistake in my opinion in meditation practice, but we discuss how this can be a complex conversation. Um, it really depends on how you define things like consciousness, awareness, and the witnessing awareness. Uh, we talk about ketamine and Pierre's work with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy and the definition of addiction and we discuss trauma and the importance of working with the body and how being in touch with our somatic embodied experience is important and it's an important way to heal trauma, especially when you do it with a skilled therapist. And we discuss how ketamine, Pierre pointed out how ketamine can assist this process in part by leading to deeper and deeper levels of relaxation. So you're relaxing more and more while maintaining awareness. Uh, and we discuss the differences between therapy that uses strong psychedelic doses and psycholytic therapy. So psychedelic therapy is when you take a large amount of a substance. You have a full-blown experience. It can be very profound, life-changing. It can also be overwhelming. And psycholytic therapy utilizes a small amount of a psychedelic substance. So you can stay in connection and communication, and you can process what comes up for you in a more manageable way, usually. Um, and I have a new favorite quote that came out of this conversation from Carl Jung who said, we must always be willing to do the next most necessary thing. And without further ado, I bring you Pierre Bouchard. today with Pierre Bouchard. Pierre, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, glad to be here. Great. And you are a therapist working in Boulder, Colorado? I am, yeah. I'm a licensed yeah. therapist. And you've been doing that for, what, five years? Six now. Six years? Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Is it, is it rewarding? Uh, I was saying to a client I was seeing earlier today, um, 
they were asking me a little bit about the work and I said, um, I am built for this. Mm. This is the absolute best use of my time. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, yeah, it feels like the, 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 the really the, the best expression and use of, um, of what my creative gifts are. Mm. So, yeah. It feels like what you're meant to be doing. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed a lot, I mean, I'm working as a therapist also, obviously, and with a lot of people I see, that question of purpose is so central, and it is often, I don't know if this is a general statement or if it just reflects the people that get attracted to me, but it's like so many other issues in their life come down to that or like are related to that. What is their purpose? What are they going to be doing? What do they want to be doing? Um, and I think that's such a struggle at times in our culture because we have this idea that we can live whatever life we want. We can create, you know, live our dreams and all that. And it can be really challenging to feel like you're not living your dreams. A hundred percent. You know, um, there's, a, there's a phrase that I, I think about a lot that was one I heard when I was quite young from Carl Jung. Mm. which was that uh, we must always be willing to do the next most necessary thing. Oh, I like that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about that in terms of um, mm. figuring out what our purpose is or what our purpose is for a time. Right. It could change. Right. Yeah. Right. But that if, and so if we're not, if we're not looking into that or uh, aligned with that, we're going to be suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, even if we're up to something quite good. Yeah, and that's interesting, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's interesting that people, like, if we're, even if you have a, a, a lot of, like, a great life, you have a lot of money, you have, you have everything you think you need, and you lack that sense of purpose, like how unsatisfying things can start to feel. And if you really have that sense of purpose, you could be like Mother Teresa, you know, like how much difficulty and suffering she was dealing with every every day, but she seemed kind of beatific, whatever that word is, <laughs> like a saint, mm -hmm. you know, like she was, it's just, it's so interesting that um, it seems like this central need that we have to feel like sense of meaning and belonging and purpose. Um, and yet it's not one thing. It can change. It's, it's something it's hard. It's hard to, you can't really grasp what that means, but, but we feel it when we're, when we're living it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or if we're aiming, we have a sense that we're aiming toward it. Right. right. Yeah, and often that's that's all you can do. Yeah. Um, so we, I invited you on partly because of your work with ketamine. Hmm. So I thought I'd just jump into that at the outset. Great. Um, yeah. But before we get into that, like, how did you come to be where you are today? Like, did you always see yourself as a therapist, or was it like a long journey to get here? Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm pausing just because I'm considering how far back, <laughs> how far back do we go to answer this question? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, let's see. I, I think I've I've known that I've wanted to be a therapist for a very long time. Mm. Uh, I, I figured that out quite early. Um, I actually come from, my parents were therapists. Oh, really? Yeah. It's like a family lineage. It's it, a bit of one, yeah. <laughs> um, and before they were therapists, my, my folks actually, my mom was a Catholic nun. Oh, really? And my dad was a priest. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, and they, they left their roles in the church to that, that's right. get married and... Yeah, have a family. Wow, amazing. And so I, I mention that because I think um, what's important there is that, uh, you know, they, they left that and then they became, you know, they went to grad school and became, uh, got into mental health in a different way. But I think they were uh, committed to seeking, mm. you know. And so uh, as a kid, that was really the, the highest value that was mm. uh, conveyed in the family. So like, well, that like you know, no matter what, uh, you should you should always be doing your own work. Mm. You should always be investigating who you are. 
That's beautiful. You grew up with that value. Yeah, quite unusual. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so that, I would say, that propelled me toward uh, therapy at a a young age. Totally. Well, I can can definitely imagine that having parents who are therapists would prepare you, hopefully in a good way, to, you know, also do that work because of the kinds of questions they might ask, the kinds of, the ways they would listen. Like, therapy is such an embodied way of being. It's not something you leave at the office when you go home and yeah, truly. get drunk and beat your wife. <laughs> <I'm joking. laughs> one, one would hope. One would hope. <laughs> I mean, it's just, for me, it's such a, whatever issue I'm struggling with in my life shows up when my clients will bring that up and I'll be helping them with it. And then I'll realize I have to walk that walk myself. Oh yeah. And that's happened so many times. It's uh, it's amazing. That's the real gift of it. I think truly that you start working on something in your life and then all of a sudden your clients are bringing that in <laughs> yeah. their sessions. Yeah, yeah, kind of miraculous. One of the gifts of that has been continually knocking down this false belief that, like, if there's some issue I have, like, I'm kind of alone with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a problem that so many people, so many people feel that way, and it kind of adds to the whatever the issue already is. It adds this extra layer. Truly. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I think you know, anytime You know, as one of my teachers likes to say, you know, we all got our ticket punched differently. Mm. Meaning, none of us had perfect childhood childhoods. No, none of us had perfect parents, even if they were gave us everything they had. And so, uh, we're always going to have had too much of some things and not enough of others. And so, right. And as kids, we we just can't help uh, but come to inaccurate conclusions about why 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 things were the way they were. Oh, interesting. That's a good point. You know, and that we, we, we definitely, as kids, kids are just uh, excellent at um, having very sort of self-centered reasons, right? So it's like if, if mom was a bit distant, hmm. a child's going to come up with this conclusion that, like, well, I must deserve that, right? In some hmm. way. Some, something I did fault. caused that. Right. Yeah, it's my fault, right? right. It's like, uh, you know, a child doesn't have the... Um, abstract thinking capacity to say like oh mom's pretty overextended and she's giving me everything she's got but i can tell that that the right it's like we yeah. have to, kids are great about making it about them and so mm-hmm. in that there's a there's a deep loneliness i think that happens mm-hmm. around certain totally certain wounds yeah and um you know i think the gift of good therapy uh in some ways is 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 discovering or being reminded that uh no we're all in, we're all in this you mm, know we're all in this we're all, yeah we're all fumbling along and uh <laughs> the, these these things that we think kind of alienate us are actually the like the things that uh make us more similar than anything else totally right yeah They're actually the things that bring us together that we have in common that we Oh, and I think that's kind of part of why we love seeing celebrities like get their dirt exposed or, you know, the tabloids and all that stuff. It's like, cause we put them up on a pedestal and they're perfect and they have everything. Mm-hmm. And then we find out, Oh no, you know, they have this addiction problem. They have this relationship problem. They, they have this trauma from the past and yeah, yeah. it's yeah. So I was going to ask, um, were there any, did you ever rebel against your parents <laughs> for being therapists? Were you ever like, fuck therapy? <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, I spent a few years after, so I studied psychology and Buddhist studies as, a, as an undergrad. Oh, that's right. And, um, and where was that? That was at Wheaton College. It was oh, okay. a tiny little school, cool. little liberal arts school in Massachusetts. And um, after that, I became a carpenter. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, uh, I decided to spend a few years, uh, you know, apprenticing as a carpenter. And as I got deeper into that, I got into farming and sustainable food. And oh, know, I spent cool. a few years doing that kind of work and uh, learning a lot that way. And, That's beautiful. Um, and at some point, I got tired of making 10 bucks an hour and mm. realized that... Uh, as much as I liked all that, I liked talking to people more. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> so I, I eventually... You're a therapist, just, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I just yielded to the truth of that, that really talking, <laughs> just talking to people is what, what I'm best at and enjoy the most. Yeah. 
So yeah, did you grow up Catholic then? No, once my folks left the church, um, they, they left all that behind. Um, yeah, well. They had found Carl Jung and sort of archetypal psychology and all of that. And really that was sort of the, the foundation uh, mm. of the spirituality in the household. So I'd say I was raised to the very sort of Joseph Campbell oh, that's amazing. sense of Christianity. That's beautiful. Yeah. You know, Catholicism gets um, such a bad rap these days in general. Yeah. For some good reasons. Yeah. But uh, it's curious to hear that. I think a lot of, I mean, I have, my father's side of the family is Catholic, but he's completely non-religious. And then my, interestingly, my brother married someone who's Catholic. They had a very Catholic wedding um, and they're raising their children with some, with some Catholicism. And um, so it's just interesting how it runs through families and, you know, it's, it's so powerful and, I think in the in the world of psychology, like this idea of original sin and like blaming ourselves and guilt and shame often gets blamed on Catholicism in particular. It's like causes a lot of uh, mental suffering. It's not often not the healthiest, maybe never the healthiest attitude to like blame ourselves for for things. Yeah, I'm not sure how useful that is for us now. Yeah, <laughs> and. Um... You know, I think there. Are, I'm, I'm by by no means a theologian, and mm. um, but I think there are a lot of really beautiful thinkers in that tradition that have a really deep understandings of um, right. humanity and existence. I mean, Richard Rohr comes to mind. Right. Um, well, I'm stunning. I'm a, yeah, like stunning understanding of totally and a way of viewing uh, the Catholic tradition. It's. Um, Certainly possible. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm a religious studies major in undergrad as well, so I, I do appreciate that um, that there are very deep, subtle, profound thinkers, you know, throughout Christian history. And um, I, I bring it up partly. This is a whole other can of worms that we don't have to go into too much. But I've had a number of podcast episodes about Shambhala and the scandals with the leader, Sakyong, you know, sexually abusing people and how terrible that is. And there's also been all the scandals with Catholicism that we know about, like with priests and mm-hmm. abusing people. Um, but it's so clear to me that, like, that doesn't mean everyone who's a practicing Catholic is, you know, a bad person. That would be ridiculous. And I think the same thing applies to the Shambhala tradition, to a lot of these organizations. And I just feel, I don't know, I feel like it's worth pointing that out because oftentimes the whole organization gets so tarred because of the leadership, mm-hmm. which deserves a lot of criticism. Um, but it doesn't mean that there weren't well-intentioned people that are caught up in it. And then they're in a really tough situation. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, truly. It's uh, quite a dilemma to be in then. It really is. And it's just our world today, it's just, it's kind of hard to believe in anything sometimes because of all these scandals, because of all this corruption that we've seen. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, you, and then you went to Naropa, right? And that's how, that's how we met. We both yeah, went to school right. there. Yeah. Yeah, so I went to Naropa and I studied contemplative psychotherapy. And uh, as I was doing that, I got really interested in studying trauma, and somatic mm. trauma work. Right. And, um, and you did some meditation retreats in that area too, right? With like Reggie Ray at Dharma Ocean. Yeah, after graduating. Oh, after graduating. Okay. I started getting serious about Reggie Ray's material. I'd been meditating since I was a teenager. And so. Um, oh. Over those over the years, that um, has looked a lot. That my practice has looked a lot of ways, but yeah, um, yeah, I, st- I got really into somatic trauma work, and then that very much led me closer to Reggie Ray's material mm-hmm. and uh, studying embodiment and uh, yeah, cool. bringing that into a contemplative practice. Do you want to share with our listeners a little bit about? Your meditation journey, like when you say somatic, and and that means basically feeling your body, right? Being in your body. Yeah. Great. Um, did you have like a meditation practice that was less embodied or not embodied, and then kind of discover how important the body is? Because that that's me personally. Like I, um, when I was first starting meditating, like focusing on the breath or like trying to let go of thoughts and not realizing how disembodied I was. Oh, entirely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was entirely me. Um, 
you know, and th there's a lot of benefit to starting meditating as a teenager. <laughs> and one of the downsides was that not really having a teacher for a long time. And so oh. there was years where I sort of was just sort of trial and error. And I think just instilled a lot of bad habits. You and know, then you have to unlearn those habits. Yeah, and, which is actually a real pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say, you know, one of those habits that I, that I really picked up that I see a lot of Buddhists get stuck with yeah. is, you know, I think there's such a focus on equanimity right. and not reacting. Right. Um, which is, which is a, like a beautiful and deep notion. But it's really easy for that, I think, to get subverted into um, actually blocking ourselves from what we are feeling. Oh, and that was definitely yeah. what I was doing for a long yeah, time. Yeah, it can be so subtle. Yeah. And so when something comes up, you can kind of cut through it or see through it or kind of let it go. And you're kind of subtly pushing it away without realizing it. Right. Yeah, totally. Right. 100%. Like training ourselves to just to witness our experience and actually not be with our experience or be in our experience right. so much. Yeah. And you've kind of separated yourself from what's happening and then you feel free. But then after a time, I think you feel less and less life force energy because you're not really living your life. You're kind of removed from it. And I think that's a mistake. I don't think that's what the Buddha meant to teach. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, I've definitely been there, and I see it in people. Then, um, like I said, it's extreme, and it becomes, like, spiritual bypassing, where, like, whatever happens, you can just kind of bypass it. Right. And it does seem like some traditions and teachers basically do teach that. I mean, if you teach that the whole world is an illusion, and, nothing, you know, nothing's really real, you can see how you can go down that, that particular path. Um, but, Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not sure how useful that is for us <laughs> as modern people. Um, yeah, you know, I don't think it's that useful either. And I think that there is a, just to finish my thought on it, there's like, there's a world of difference between um, fully feeling something and finding freedom within that, and like just passively witnessing everything and telling yourself that it's empty or that it doesn't matter or that it's going to pass or. Um, yeah, because you're, you're blocking the feeling, you're blocking the experience. Yeah, a hundred percent. What what I have learned in my own, as my own practice has developed over the last nineteen years, and mm. uh, in my work as a psychotherapist, and as my training has deepened, and uh, as I've, I've developed into a ketamine therapist, um, mm. and having, you know done a lot of treat my own treatment in that way uh, more and more so what what seems crucial to me is actually allowing ourselves to be be our experience nice. like there's always there's always I think yeah we have a capacity to witness our experience um, and we can get a little too addicted to witnessing hmm where it's actually like a lot more interesting in my experience to be moved by your experience than mm. uh, just witnessing it. Yeah. You know, there's, uh, I think there's a way in which uh, we're invited actually to sort of in a, in a moment to moment way make love to phenomena, to be just mm. right up against it, right up against our experience of sometimes we're sort of pressing into it, sometimes we are uh, receiving it and letting, us, letting it move us. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's that's a lot more interesting than witnessing. <laughs> do you do you think that the witness, like accessing that, I mean, that can have value as well? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely can. I just think it gets overused. Right. In this moment, talking about it with you, it's like I think when some meditation teachers talk about the witness, talk about awareness, like I think. That doesn't contradict what you're saying necessarily, but it could be understood that way. I and mean, it could be understood in the way of separating yourself from your experience. But um, yeah, it's just it gets so subtle and you really have to actually practice to be able to access the subtleties that, that this involves. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it, a, it's, a long, it's a long journey. It's a long journey, yeah. And there's, yeah. there's ups and downs and there is a danger. There are dangers in meditation practice. Yeah. There's... Um, yeah, for me, I practice, you know, pretty much every day, and it's a commitment, and it's a journey, and um, it's kind of like, I mean, it definitely affects you, so if, like, I start to, I try to um, pay attention to my, my whole life and see what I need, 
rather than be too dogmatic or strict about what I'm doing. Because um, I think it could take some people out of balance. I mean, I worked, I worked at a place with people who had severe mental health issues like schizophrenia, and some of them had suffered schizophrenic breaks through doing intensive meditation, yoga, fasting, you know, and man, boom, then the next thing they know they're in the, the hospital and, and they're uh, trying to put their mind back together. And so it can, you know, maybe, and that's an extreme example, but I think some version of that could be true. I think, I think that it deserves respect because it is, it can be dangerous. And I think the same thing is true of psychedelics. So no question. hundred like percent. Yeah. No question. <laughs> yeah. It's not for everyone all the time. Right. Yeah. yeah. It needs to be used with care and in the right way. You know, I, I like to think of, you know, that there's an order of operations to any of these things too, you know, where mm. um, there may be a meditation practice that is really appropriate for you at one stage of life um, that, mm. out, that outlives its usefulness. Right. And then you later, know? maybe you need something different. Time, time for it to shift. And it would be a, it's a real shame, I think, when people get, so, get rigid in their practice and they're like, this is what I do. This is it. And it's like, mm. well, there's actually something in life that's wanting to unfold here, I think, a bit more mm. um, that we have to be, be a bit more responsive to. And it means, right. which, which I think means um, like we, it's, it's so important to have a, te a good teacher Right. And also yeah. one that, that can be helping you track that. And, yeah. Uh, maybe also has the flexibility of mind to recognize. Yeah. Also, practice is going right. to Right, a good teacher that, yeah, exactly, with the flexible mind. I mean, the Buddha, we go back to the Buddha, like he was taught different things for different people. Like, it's right there in his original teachings. And right. That gets, for some reason, that gets forgotten. <laughs> but um, I would say to that, like my advice I've been giving people is like, a lot of big meditation teachers, they're wonderful to see, and it's like really good to go on retreat and have that experience, but they're not really available for one-on-one -on -one instruction. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've sought out some people that I could just meet with one-on-one, -on -one. Mm -hmm. and um, you know, some of them I've paid, like, and, they've, and I've worked with them for a period of time, and that's been helpful for me. And it's something that wasn't really offered by you know, the big famous gurus, meditation people. So Yeah, it's been my experience as well. Yeah. Um, crucial. Yeah, I think it's really developing having having good mentors in this way. Yeah, it's worth yeah. it's worth seeking out. Yeah. Uh, well, great. Well, how did um, how did your interest in psychedelics? If we jump over to that subject, how did that develop? Did that come out of your meditation practice? You're exploring. You know, I kind of came to it later in life, actually. Okay. Um, I mean, I had some early experiences with things in you know college, right? Uh, but. Uh, I would say categorically they were, you know, they were just a kid trying stuff. Right. <laughs> which is very different. And so when I was, when I was studying, working with trauma, uh, my, one of my teachers in that ended up becoming one of the uh, uh, lead clinicians for phase two of the uh, MDMA study that oh, was being amazing. done by MAPS. Cool. And here in Boulder? Yeah. That's, that's right. awesome. Yeah. And I just remember hearing his reports of uh, what that looked like. Cool. And saying, like, oh, my gosh, this is totally uh, blowing anything I've ever seen out of the water. Yeah. And so it started piquing my interest. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, uh, within a few years, I would say, um, ketamine came on the radar. And I was able to do some sessions with my with my teacher. Oh, really? Yeah, that's amazing. I do a bit of an apprenticeship in that way. Um, See, that's that's been surprising to me that ketamine. Like, I don't, I'm never really heard about that when I was a kid. I've actually never. I don't have any experience with ketamine. You know, it's one substance I've never actually done myself, and I yeah, I want to, and I'm looking forward to that. But um, it always kind of surprises me that of all the psychedelics, that one's become use so much in therapy, and I understand that's because it's legal, right? That's the main reason, perhaps, or one of the reasons. It's definitely one of the reasons, for sure. Are there other advantages to ketamine that you see, like, over other substances? Yeah. Uh, one, there's a couple. Uh, one being that um, it's short-acting. Mm. You know, so when people... There's, there's, there's a number of different ways to take ketamine, um, the routes of administration, and... Isn't a like injection one? So you could do an intravenous. You could do an intramuscular dose. You could uh, 
take a lozenge and have it oh, absorb really? in your mouth. Those are really the sort of the three most common ones that are used therapeutically, but you know, plenty of people party by snorting it. Right, that's more of the party version. <laughs> that would be, be one of the party versions for sure. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of ways to, to take ketamine. The one that I use in my practice is lozenges, which is it's a lower dose than, than the, the intramuscular mm. dose, which is quite high. Um, and they get a prescription for it, right? That's right. It's amazing. They'll, they'll get a prescription from a psychiatrist. And what would the prescription be for? Like something like depression? Yeah, depression, uh, PTSD, that kind of thing. And so they'll take, they'll come to the office, and they'll they, like they have the prescription. This is something that their doctor prescribes for them that right. they can pick up from a pharmacy. And then it's like their choice to take it with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Basically. Okay. Yeah. And so they it's lay on the couch and they take a dose of this and they swish it around in their mouth for 10 to 15 minutes and it absorbs through the mucous membranes okay. and start to finish those sessions are three hours long. Wow. And so, um, you know, that's considerably more manageable than uh, six hours or longer with, you know, psilocybin or... I mean, LSD could be... So it could be like 12 hours. <laughs> quite long. You know, which For is, some people, maybe it goes on forever. <laughs> so, yeah, three hours. So yeah. in three hours, they're back more or less to where they started in terms of yeah. functioning. That's right. Okay. Definitely don't recommend anyone drive afterwards. Okay. Um, but they're pretty much back. Cool. Yeah. And so uh, that's a really... Uh, it, there's a lot of advantage to having that. Right, like that's that's something you can do in an afternoon, mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah kind so. of, I imagine it provides. I mean, three hours is maybe that's like a great length of time because you could focus and really you know have attention for a period of time. Whereas like six hours, like you're going to need as a therapist, you're going to need breaks. You're going to need to go to the bathroom. You know, there's going to be an ebb and flow there. <laughs> but maybe mm -hmm. for three hours, there can be more of a a focus. I mean, is there often like a specific intention that goes into it? Or is it more general? I would say it really depends on the client, and it mm. depends on where they are in their in their journey. I would say that so the way that I work with people, you know, some people will do, you know, packages where they'll do say four to six sessions, mm. uh, and they'll try and do a piece of work. I find that what when you're doing psycholytic psychotherapy, meaning you're doing psychedelic medicines with it at a dose where someone's able to really talk and relate and kind of work mm. with their own psychology. Can you say that word again? Psycholytic. Psycholytic. Yeah. yeah. So that's, so that's a lower dose. It's a lower dose where you're sort of in a working psychological window versus psychedelic, which would be um, above that where you're sort of encountering more sort of transpersonal material. Hmm. Um, where there's a lot less talking, there's more of just like being with the experience, right? It'd be a bit, it'd be a bit uh, overwhelming, or so imagine in that case, that the role of the therapist would be more just holding space, yeah, making sure they're safe and right. comfortable and being there if they're needed, but right. maybe less active, right? Intervention, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so, uh, people will have intentions. Um, often, yeah, I would say like I, what I find often is it early and oh, what I was trying to say earlier was that um, I really like to do a, a longer more ongoing work with people mm. with ketamine. So it's not like a one-time thing. It's not a one-time thing, and I think most of the time it's not even a six-time thing. It's more right. like 10 to 20 times. You know, Great. over over six months, over a year, mm -hmm. you know. And that it, it's really, it's the repeated, the repeated accessing of this territory and, and accessing their mind. You know, each time you do something like this, something opens, something gets worked, and then each time there's like there's an iterative process to that. And so, um, right. whereas in the beginning right. it may be like, okay, there's this thing I really want to work on, and I think we're going to do this. And after a time, there's just sort of like, yeah, I just trust the process. I don't know where, I don't know what's going to come up today, but I know that I'm capable, this is the client speaking, I know I'm capable huh. of just being with whatever comes up. Beautiful, yeah. You know, and so then so we're just... building confidence. They are. Yeah, and there's also like this trust in your own process, your own life, because so many times, you know, people have something like, oh, I feel anxious, I have anxiety attacks, like, fix me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it just doesn't, it's not how our life works. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. As if we could. You know, and, and I think, and so for me, uh, you know, somatic work really ties in so well with this, because mm. to, to me, somatic work is also 
you know, when you're tuning into the body, you're tuning into a thing that really does like doesn't give a shit what your preferences are. <laughs> your body doesn't care. You know, your body has a far more objective uh, view of the situation than 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 our minds do. And like, I don't know about you, but I can convince myself of just about anything. Yeah. You know, but that's um, fair. That's a good point. But if I tune into my body, there's a there, there's a there is a clear sense. There's a truth there, and there's, there's a, a yeah. It's always in the present moment. Yeah. You know, and it's something that you can you can feel. It's not just something you're thinking about. And but I do wonder. Um, because I've heard that before, like, the body never lies or some saying like that. Yeah. And I, I get that, but I also think that sometimes you, like, I'm walking along and I see something and my body, you know, I stop, I get startled. I think it's a snake. Oh, it's just a rope. Right. Well, so then my body was, like, for sure it thought maybe, you know, it got ready to run or whatever, but it, you know, it wasn't objectively true. It wasn't a snake there. So I think right. the body doesn't always... I think that the mind-body connection is so deep that you could have a false belief that your body then is is communicating also. So it's not necessarily true. Well, and that's what we see in trauma all the time. Mm, nice. Right? Yeah. What's objective is your experience. Right. You know, it's not, right. it's not objective about the world. Right. It's your experience. But it is objective about your experience. Nice. So um, you perceive the, the rope as a snake and the body responds yeah. accordingly. There's an yeah. objective truth to the response. That's a good, uh, good point. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I would say that, you know, the, the work of any good trauma therapy, right, is, is, is being able to pull those things apart, mm. right? W what was a rope? Mm. What was a snake? Mm. And um, in trauma, things happen too quickly for us to actually have a chance to respond to them in a way we'd like to. Mm. Uh, or, or we had no chance to respond at all. And that's part of what makes it traumatic, right? It is. It's like an overwhelming thing. Like trauma is an overwhelm hmm. of the system, mm -hmm. right? And so in trauma therapy, one of the things we're doing is giving the nervous system a chance to complete what it didn't get to complete mm, when nice. the event initially happened. Right. Whether it was um, getting to brace and protect oneself from a car accident or getting to fight back from being uh, assaulted in some way. Mm. Um, yeah. Or, you know, on, on a more developmental layer, you know, as, as a child, right? Like getting to receive nourishment or to reach out for support mm. when that wasn't available. It's, you know, all of these things we would qualify as trauma right. um, in very different ways. And so it's like giving the nervous system a chance and the the body and our minds a chance to, to uh, complete and integrate what didn't get to happen. Mm. It's like these things get stored inside us and they're still alive, kind of, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. They end up yeah, that was... running our lives. <laughs> I appreciate your um, speaking about this so clearly because it's, it's a tricky subject, trauma and how to work with it. And I really appreciate, I think, you know, something unique about you that you're bringing to your work is the somatic meditation. Mm. And that is, I see that, you know, as a way of working through doing some of this process you just described on your own, like when you're sitting, right? Like that could be another way to access some of this. Well, it's definitely, definitely a way to start turning, tuning into what, what is there, mm. you know, like, I, I, you know, we can't change what we're up to until we know what we're up to. Mm. And I think one one of the the, the geniuses of, of Reggie Ray and, and the way he he taught about somatic meditation was that um, a body that's tight is a body that can't feel much. Mm. You know, a, yeah, a, a, that's a, a good saying too. Yeah. A contracted muscle doesn't actually have much blood flow to it, so it's mm. not actually going to register a ton of sensation. Yeah. Right. And it's so like the, the stiffness, the tightness, the holding on, the bracing. The... That's it. On an unconscious level. That's then, it. Yeah. And so we have to get we have to get clued into that that that's happening. And the only way we can we can do that is by having some contrast, mm. by having times where we actually have deep bodily re relaxation. And so it's like if 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 the if our if we have a experiential reference point for relaxation, we're going to notice tightness a lot more, mm. and it's going to help us start to um, orient more toward relaxation. If it's all steady state tension, we don't even know what we're missing. Right. 
which is which was <laughs> one of the frustrating things of finding somatic meditation. I don't know. 12 to 14 years after I started meditating. Mm. I feel like in some ways I had to start all over. Totally, yeah. I do remember going on meditation retreats and having so much uh, tension and and pain, you know, like, because um, I was sitting too stiffly, actually, and I, I wasn't yeah. dropping into my body and deeply relaxing and practicing from that place. And so, yeah, it's <laughs> I think... Um, yeah, I think that's something so important, that stiffness, that muscle tightness, and then and then being aware of it. And then if you're holding all that kind of tension for so long, of course you're going to have back pain. Of course you're going to have headaches and tension and trouble sleeping at night. and All these more surface-level things that we will complain about because they suck, um, they might be coming from like our muscles like gripping too tight throughout mm-hmm. the day. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think caffeine can play a role in that if you're you know, doing too much caffeine. Stress, anxiety, obviously, don't help. Uh, so yeah, truly, and that there are so many layers to this, right? Like, mm. I I think like what you've just described is a, is a deep truth that we end up seeing on just deeper and deeper levels of how one relates to their own existence, right? Like, mm. there I could be clenching my butt right now as I sit to maintain a, a certain level of uprightness, <laughs> yeah. but if we if we go down to a deep enough layer, which Luckily, something like psychedelics is helping us access. Is that like I actually might be white knuckling my existence to some degree? Oh, yeah. I mean, I might be, and totally unconsciously, like assuming, like if I'm not holding on on some deep fundamental level, mm. I will be totally annihilated. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, what we start to see. You know, there's research that's sort of showing, you know high-dose psilocybin sessions for people who are terminally ill can help them work with just this mm. and and help them prepare for their their, their upcoming death right. and, and have a lot less, ex- mm. lot less anxiety around their death. And I think mm. this is part of it. And we're talking about a fundamental dynamic of um, struggling and holding on versus letting go and trusting our experience. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. Struggling and holding on versus letting go. <laughs> letting go of control. Just, yeah. Man, it's so hard for so many of us. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> maybe all of us. I don't know. Yeah, maybe Definitely. that's just the human condition. Yeah. I And I love that you're bringing psychedelics into this and that they, maybe ketamine in particular, can help with the relaxation and getting in touch with what does it feel to be really relaxed and then being able to carry that as a, a reference point. Very much, very much, and you know, it, I I don't do it in my practice, but I would say this is this would be my plug for it for I am, you know, intramuscular doses where uh, uh, people are approaching something closer to an ego death experience. So that would be more psychedelic, more. It would, yeah, and that's going to give people a chance to sort of relate at that level of, am I holding on, uh, or can I can I trust this experience? Yeah, can I trust, can I let go? Yeah. And then that's so profound when we think about our death and how that must be a, I mean, that's the time to really let go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think um, being able to, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I can't say who said this, right, but it seems like there's a lot of, I mean, especially Tibetan Buddhist practice seems very much about preparing us for our death. I'm sure totally. you could speak to it, speak to that more. Yeah, I actually just had a, a memory come up of when I was on retreat with Reggie Ray. Probably, I think it must have been ten years ago, nine years ago, ten years ago, and he was talking about exactly this and how it's all about preparing for the moment of death and total letting go, letting go of control, that our ego, our sense of uh, holding on to a self as a kind of contraction. And that's what needs to be uh, relaxed. And um, he told this kind of heartbreaking story of a longtime Buddhist meditator that he'd known for years or decades, and how at the moment of their death, they were forcing themselves to sit up straight in meditation posture, and they were struggling a lot. And he's, he said it was like a really hard death, and they weren't able to just relax, to let go. At least this was his telling of it. Yeah. He's a yeah. It was an amazing story. He's a very powerful teacher. Um, 
And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, my mother was a uh, hospice social worker for 20 to 25 years. And I, I, I remember her some years ago telling me the story of, uh, you know, one of her clients who, wealthy woman, badass, badass woman who, you know, ran shit, you know, uh -huh. just, a, just a force to be reckoned with, very powerful. And as she approached her own death, just utterly terrified. Mm. You know, someone. This was someone who'd who'd done, who'd done, who'd gotten through life well by by being in control. Right. And here, here they were in an utterly unmanageable situation where you can't control. Mm. And it was just she just suffered very intensely mm. and had I think a very uncomfortable death. Wow. Yeah, it's another powerful story. I think it's um, I think it's good to hear a story like that reflect that you know we're all going to die and that's something that we can actually prepare for yeah even just thinking about it a little bit <laughs> it is you know and I, and I think this is where um psychedelic psychotherapy actually gives us some deep practice into it oh beautiful yeah just one last thought to close this loop i think part of reggie ray's point in that story is like the buddhist tradition sometimes makes such a big deal about death that it's almost counterproductive because then you're like that guy was struggling to sit up in the right posture and do the right practice, and right. and that's actually could actually be missing the point. So right, just wanted to offer that <laughs> De definitely, and I think that that very much kind of goes back to what we we're talking about whether you know is is this practice right at all times or is this right. is, you know exactly. Uh, whereas actually laying like laying down as if as if he was incapable of of being mindful while laying down. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just had. Uh, this little conversation with someone the other day and I was talking about trying to stay awake um, while relaxing, you know, and, and being lucid and maintaining awareness. And they were like, I think that's like a little bit of meditation propaganda that goes too far. Like I've had some of my most powerful experiences letting myself fall asleep mm. and then being in the dream state. And I was like, oh, that's a good point. <laughs> I like that. Well, you know, and something else I see, you know, in, as, a, as, a, as a trauma therapist too you know that when we're working with trauma, we're we're sort of one way of describing it is that we're moving away from that which wasn't great. Mm. You know, like we're like we're 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 less consumed by by a wound. We're less consumed by something bad. Mm. Uh, but but something that doesn't get talked about, I think, nearly enough is what are we moving toward? Oh yeah. Right. What what is it? What is it that actually helps us live a good life? Right. And as we're doing that work, I think it, 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 depending on how you're working, I think this is very much where uh, psychotherapy and spirituality get, get a bit blended. Mm. You know, I think of, I'm thinking of spirituality as one of the tools, at least, that help us live a good life. Yeah. And in that, I think a lot, we actually have to stretch our nervous system to tolerate more relaxation, mm. to tolerate more pleasure. Yes. Yeah, I love that you're bringing that in. Yeah, absolutely. Like what if, if we don't really know what health and well-being feels like, then we right. can mistrust it. We definitely can. <laughs> we definitely can. And that I think, uh, I mean, I, I, I had a very similar experience of for, for years when I was doing laying down meditation practice, I just fall right asleep. Uh -huh. yeah. You know, and there, there's actually, I think, a, a stretching and a growing of capacity of the nervous system to tolerate relaxation um, yeah. while staying lucid. Right, yeah. You know? Yeah, I think falling asleep, letting yourself sleep, uh, is actually so healing. And I've kind of, I've only really started to appreciate this more recently. And uh, so many times when I see a client, I started asking this. I'm like, "How's your sleep?" Yeah. And uh, nine times out of ten, oh, it's terrible. Oh, last night I woke up three or four times. I try to go to bed at eleven. I didn't fall asleep till two. You know, if someone's really in a kind of crisis mode of their sleep. I mean, it's just it's so fundamental. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's a huge part of living a decent life. Yeah, <laughs> easy to forget about. Um, so you really like see psychedelics as helping people open up some of these doors, like with ketamine, like the, the body relaxation, even like experiences of ego death are possible. Yeah, quite so. I, is I, there is there an addiction uh, danger that you see? There can be. Yeah. Um, I I mean I I'd say like so. Uh, people can get addicted to ketamine, you know. Um, 
there, there is a physical addiction that can happen if it is used too frequently. Oh, interesting. Um, so that's something to be careful about. And, and more so, I would say that um, people can get addicted to just about anything. You know, any, yeah. like anything that's going to help someone um, avoid their experience, you can, you know, you can, you can get addicted to. Totally, like the right? phone, the this, the that. Phone, porn, gambling, substances, yeah. it, it almost doesn't matter. It's like whatever helps me disconnect from what's happening here that's uncomfortable, yeah. we can get addicted to. And, yeah, and so, I mean, one I would say... <laughs> uh, it's too expensive to, to, to do that with ketamine therapy. Because they're getting like, the prescription and then they're also paying you. <laughs> yeah, they're paying me, which is not cheap um, right. for my time. But I, I, but I would say that, you know, the difference here, right, and, and this, this is a difference of, this has, it has nothing to do with the substance here. I would say it has everything to do with the approach, which is mm. that um, you can use something to distance from your experience or move closer to it. Mm. And know it more intimately. It's beautiful. So maybe that could be a definition of addiction versus non-addiction. Um, I wish I had a better word than non-addiction, but I'm not sure what. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not avoiding your experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I think maybe this would be a little controversial to say or complicates the picture, but it's not like just because a drug is a prescription, you know, it's not addictive. Like if we look at some of the antidepressants. Or benzos, you, or benzos, or yeah, you, if you're taking it and you have to taper off of it and there's all these side effects and withdrawal, I mean, isn't that, that's the definition of addiction too. So it's, I think we need to like be more honest about some of these things. Yeah. Or, or nuanced. More nuanced. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there's so many, there's a lot of nuances there and people don't tend to crave their antidepressant medication, but your system adjusts to that reality and then you need that to feel normal after a while. Um, and that could be great for some people. That could be really helpful. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I would say yeah. it's 100% helpful for some people. Yeah. I think it gets overused. I think psychiatrists yeah. overprescribe. Right. Um, and, you know, it, for a long time, it's been the best tool we've had. Mm. I think we're coming into a time where we have better tools. That's exciting. I, I, think, psychedelic, I think ketamine is leading the way, and I think... Uh, you know, MDMA is going to be legalized in the next couple of years, hopefully, if it passes the phase three trial, which it's, it looks like it's going to, Yeah. Um, for treating PTSD and probably a whole host of other things at some point. So when, do you think think that, when do you think that might be legal? Uh, from what I'm seeing from MAPS is that they're expecting that to be rescheduled from a schedule one to um, either a schedule two or three, I don't recall, um, hmm. in 2022. Oh wow! Really, just right around the corner. Beautiful. So I think you know these. This is we're we're looking at a a fundamental paradigm shift in how we're considering mental health and how we're treating mental health, and that we can really be moving from a a, a time where we've been um, treating symptoms with mm. antidepressants and um, you know benzos and and these other things moving from treating symptoms to really to really healing the root causes mm. of 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 these of these things that are yeah creating trouble <laughs> that's so exciting i really um admire the work that you're doing it sounds so powerful and i guess like do you see trauma for lack of a better word is almost always part of the root causes or is there some i mean is that maybe that could be a definition of trauma or are there some I don't know. Like, are there other things that would cause lifelong mental health problems? I mean, I think we can't rule out genetics. We can't rule out um, wacky environmental sure. um, contaminants. I, I, mean, I mean, shoot, I think from what we're learning about the, uh, the gut-brain connection, I think mm. there's a lot of things. There's a lot of factors, so uh, I don't want to paint too yeah, broad of a brush here. Yeah, I think that's an honest answer. There could just be a physiological thing that if it shifted, you could all of a sudden your depression might lift. That's possible. Quite, quite so. I yeah. think, and I mean, I, um, there are different, different mental health air quotes mental health conditions that seem like actually, um, <laughs> if someone has the right balance of minerals, they go away. 
right? Or you know, if someone has yeah. if someone has a thyroid disorder, they, that can lead to psychosis, right? So there's That's just, so fascinating. It is, and so there's just it, this is an extremely complex thing. Hmm. I would say though that you know I tend to I tend to hold a clinical belief that. Um, a lot of the root causes of what gets us in trouble in our lives that that is psychological we can classify as a trauma hmm. now that, that really depends on how we're how we're defining trauma here hmm. which is uh, in the broadest sense right like we, we have to look so much broader than um, an assault or hmm a wartime experience. We have to look, we, we're, we're basically having to look at this as broad as possible. Mm -hmm. And to do so, I think the way we can talk about that is um, any stress, stressful, overwhelming experience that gets coded into our nervous system mm -hmm. um, and shapes our view of the world. I like that. It gets coded into our nervous system. It becomes, that's that quality of still being alive in some sense. You're still being active still. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and the thing is, I think a lot of times in trauma, we think about the things that, that happened that shouldn't have, right? The assaults, the car accidents, mm -hmm. the, everything else. What we don't talk about, and this is more sort of a developmental trauma and sort of leads more to like a complex PTSD, is the things that didn't happen that should have. Mm. Having a parent that was delighted by your sheer existence, mm. having um, yeah. consistent caretaking, you know, these, yeah. these, these sins of omission, so to speak. Right. Um, yeah, and there's just been fascinating and heartbreaking studies about the importance of a caregiver when you're a child. Um, it's everything. So having an attentive, attuned person caring for you. It's it's as essential as food. Mm. That's a great message to share. And so, you know, our our minds are very creative. We're very adaptive creatures. You know, we're gonna we're gonna find a way to deal with with what what we're given. Yeah. And, um, well, and part of what you're saying, if you is if you don't have a caretaker like that, there's still healing that can happen. It's not like you're cursed for the rest of your life. No, and it's true. It kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about in 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 good trauma therapy, we're helping someone have a missing experience mm. or complete something they didn't get to complete. Yes. And yeah. That, and that if um, if someone didn't have a parent who was delighted in the sheer existence, there's a way in which they can get. You know, it's not the same, but there is a way that they can um, receive that mm. to a degree with a with a with a loving, uh, yeah, therapist. The therapist could help, and then they could learn how to have that in partnership and friendship. Yeah, right, and then um, that can get sort of put together later in life. Yes. So I'd say it's a very optimistic message. Yeah, it, oh, like yeah. I think. Um, you know, none of us are set in stone. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we're finding it's a more current neuroscience research is really showing that the brain is malleable up until death. So, yeah, I love that. I think that's so true and so amazing. The plasticity, the malleability. Yeah. And what we do know is that psychedelics actually help increase that, right? So as we're, when we're young, right. um, the, the brain is, is malleable. Uh, and the older we get, the more rigid it gets. And mm. so for people in midlife and beyond, actually some psychedelic psychedelics can be very helpful for reintroducing a little more flexibility in the mind. Totally. To uh, have a new experience. Right. Have a, ha, you know, um, make some new neural pathways. Yeah. Well, and one way to talk about that would be openness, right? Like yes. increasing the openness. And I think some people... Maybe this is more common if you're really young and you take strong psychedelics, you, you're blasted too open and you get a little fractured and you have to ground yourself, you have to come back, you have to... Yeah. So it's, it's, that's an interesting thing, that quality of openness. And I think, for sure, I think psychedelics increase that, the openness in, the, in someone's personality. And um, there's a danger in leading to excess. I mean, this is like a bigger societal point. Like if psychedelics are becoming more accepted and more mainstream... I'm concerned that there will be excesses and then another backlash against them, like what happened in the 60s. You know, you become so open and everything is groovy or whatever. 
there's going to be this puritanical backlash against it. So I hope this time around, and I think it is, like organizations like MAPS and the scientific studies and bringing it into therapy, it's like a way of really honoring these medicines and using them in the best way that we can. Yeah, it's definitely a, a more measure, measured rollout than... <laughs> Than Timothy Leary. <laughs> and, yeah, Leary's acid tests. Right. Uh, and I appreciated the point you made about living a, like, happier, you know, just better life overall. Because, like, something my mom asked is, she's like, well, if you don't have PTSD, you don't have a big trauma, then you don't need to take MDMA, like, even if it becomes legal. Mm -hmm. And I think that could be a bit of a shame. Like, I think, like, I would love to see a world where, like, psilocybin could be offered to anyone who's nearing the death process or anyone who just is ready to have a transformative experience. You know, it doesn't need to be because you got assaulted or this terrible thing happened. That you, right. Yeah. Well, and, right, which is a really interesting discussion about how we're, uh, how we are approaching healing and, and what healing is, right? And we're, right. we're using a very pathological medical model, right? right? There's something wrong that needs to be fixed. Right. And in some ways, you know, I can really get behind that because this is sort of, I mean, if this is the Trojan horse approach that allows us, uh, you know, allows psychedelics to become mainstream, I think that's going to be by far more yeah. positive. But what, we, but what we're going to need to have a conversation about that you're pointing to is what about... You know, like the classic phrases, uh, you know, right? Like, so there's 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 a doing this for um, treatment of it, of a malady, but then there's also right using this as the betterment of well people. Mm. That's a nice phrase. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that's not something we really <clears throat> understand well at this point in terms of how to how to speak about that. How do we how do we fit that into our current diagnostic model? Yeah, yeah we need that. We need this on like we need to have this conversation as a society, right? As a culture, what is a life well lived? Is yeah. Jeff Bezos like our supreme role model? You know, is there something? <laughs> I <laughs> we, sure hope not. <laughs> if we look at other cultures, you know, like we have people like the Dalai Lama. Maybe he's a better role model. Like, there's other models we can look at. We can expand our understanding of what a good life is beyond just acquiring as much money as possible. Yeah. But for some reason, in America, we just are so. We just keep going back to that, you know, just, that's the thing that's, I think it's the thing that could end up, I hate to say this, destroying our country, right? This, this grasping, this greed, like everything, everyone's excuse for why they're doing messed up things is money, right? Yeah, I think we're, we're actually at a really critical point. I think we're culturally being confronted with this in such a deep way. And I think really yeah. actually the pandemic is showing that, um, yeah. that, uh, right, we've we've done a beautiful job of fetishizing a handful of billionaires, and uh, <laughs> I'm not sure it's the way forward for us. No, I'm not sure. I just they just had the four top tech billionaires go before Congress. Was it like Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Google? And those four companies made something like 26 billion dollars in the last quarter, while the rest of the economy was tanking. So, this pandemic has really just accelerated these trends that were already happening. Yeah. You know, Amazon was already so dominant, but now it's just so that's a whole other topic, but I think it I think it relates because it's we're just touching on the fundamental values of our culture. Truly, and right, this is a larger conversation about what it what is it to actually live a good life. Right. Right. And 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 we really are up against that in a big way. And um Yeah. Yeah, I've heard a lot of talk in the psychedelic community around trying, you know, as these things become more acceptable and legalized, not letting giant corporations run the show, you know, let it, like really keeping it more, more local, more genuine. The focus on healing, not on making money from them, um, but it's an important part of the conversation. It is, and um, it really remains to be seen, and um, I think it's a really tricky one, and. Yeah. I think there's a certain amount of neoliberal late capitalist horseshit that is going to be completely inescapable from uh, infiltrating the psychedelic industry and world. Um, yeah. I think we're already starting to see it around psilocybin. There's a lot um, Interesting. moving in the background there that I'm not nearly well educated on enough. But um, yeah, it's it's if, if it's happening here in our culture now, that's going to be part of it. 
Right. And, and yeah. we're going to be asked to continue to, to relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I heard, and I don't know the details of this or the, the total facts of it, but the corporations have been filing in, um, like patents on some of the DNA or the strands of psilocybin, like ways that they could patent something like that. And so hopefully that won't, won't happen, but yeah. I think we can count on it happening. <laughs> I think we're going to have to count on some sort of counterforce hmm. um, moving in a different direction. Right. Okay, yeah. It remains <laughs> to be seen what that is. I'm sure there's plenty of people having conversations about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think um, just the fact that these psilocybin mushrooms grow all over the world and the spores are in the air, there's a certain, there's almost, there's a certain force like within that to kind of equalize it. You know, that's that's probably why they they're still around. Like they can't really get rid of them, no matter how illegal we try. They're gonna keep popping up in cow shit. <laughs> yeah, we can trust that. So, yeah. well, it's been great having you on the podcast. Really appreciate it. I think you're doing wonderful work, and I think it's really deep work and really needed. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you have found this podcast valuable, there are many ways in which you can support it. You can share it with friends and on your social media. You can leave us a review on your favorite podcast listening app, and you can visit our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash a state of mind. For show notes and more information unique to each episode, visit astateofmindplay.com. And to learn more about my work as a therapist, meditation teacher, and coach, visit julianocean.us. And please don't hesitate to send me a message or email and let me know what you think and contribute to our conversation. Thank you so much for your support. It is listeners like you that make all this so very much worthwhile.